This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, in this episode, we are going to discuss uh, a topic that's vitally important for our world today, uh, crowdsourcing. It's a, it's a concept we didn't have years ago, uh, and it's fundamentally the concept that we'll talk about with regard to how uh, a larger public can be involved in financing and supporting major efforts in our society during times of prosperity and times of crisis. Uh, we're fortunate to have two of the foremost thinkers and actors in this space uh, in Austin and in, in the country, uh, Lance McNeil and Miha Vindish. Lance McNeil is a program manager with the City of Austin's Small Business Program. In this role, he coaches and teaches small business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs. He also uh, oversees the City of Austin, Austin's Challenge Studio Program, which uh, sounds great. It incubates social entrepreneurs working towards solutions to local and regional challenges. So, so Lance is really in the center of work being done that's uh, related to crowdsourcing and small business entrepreneurship. Uh, we also have Miha Vindish, Dr. Miha Vindish, uh, with us. Miha has already been on our podcast before. He is, uh, among other things, uh, a scholar and practitioner of so many important areas in our society. He's a professor at the University of Texas, teaching graduate and undergraduate courses on leadership and entrepreneurship. Uh, he also is a consultant working with organizations to create and implement strategic planning processes. He's an expert on scenario planning and wrote a fantastic dissertation, actually, that I had the great pleasure to advise at the University of Texas. Uh, Miha, Lance, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Before we turn to our discussion with Miha and uh, Lance, uh, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? The Pockets of the People. Well, let's hear about the pockets of the people. Masses, we are the people, the collective spirit of millennia of groupthink, ages of individualism, sacred memories of the holy. We are the conjoined us, and we are the seven billion strong, each of us a contradictory singularity, getting the paper in our socks covered with fallen pollen. Masses, the millions with little red books, the endless boots goose-stepping into collective hallucinations, dying in our farms, marching to death for the people, the centrifugal power that doesn't know its own might. Masses, we are the millions, each of us on our own journey across the ocean to the virgin pull yourself up by your bootstrap soil of Massachusetts Bay or of San Diego's Great Harbor, motivated by the unitary thought of American individualism. Masses, we are the billions, releasing carbon into the atmosphere, squeezing oil from rocks, looking down from heavenward jets. Masses, we are the people, with one dollar in our back pocket to save the planet, a dollar in our front pocket to change the world, a dollar in our breast pocket to fund the next Steinbeck, a dollar in our hats for the thousands it takes to make a kid cancer-free. You cover a lot there, Zachary. What is your poem really about? My poem's really about this contradiction that um, th this idea of the masses of a collective group of people have the power uh, to do a tremendous amount of damage uh, to to kill millions, to uh, destroy our planet, but at the same time, we have that we have the power to create immense beauty and to help so many people, even to save our planet. 
That's a wonderful vision. Uh, Miha, this is something you've thought uh, a lot about. I want to turn the discussion over to you so you and, and Lance can talk about this. Uh, but maybe why don't you get us started, Miha, with, with how we should think about and frame this question of crowdsourcing. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, great poem, Zachary. Uh, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there that crowdsourcing, um, like any other tool, can be used for um, for good or can be used for bad. Um, it is just a tool. Um, but nevertheless, it is something that's becoming more and more popular, more and more predominant in society today. Um, it's seen some absolutely amazing applications. Um, but before we get into some of those, um, I wanted to, to start off the discussion by, by kind of breaking down what, what is crowdsourcing and what is crowdfunding. Um, we often think of crowdfunding, uh, and people, I think most of your, your listeners might probably think of things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Patreon, GoFundMe. Uh, these are tools which, for the most part, are used to generate funds. But there's a lot more to crowds uh, than just funding. And so... Um, I want to pose this question to Lance. Um, so Lance, in, in, in your views, what is crowdsourcing and why do you think crowdsourcing is important today? And how is crowdsourcing related to the kind of crowdfunding that I think most of us think about today? Yeah, certainly. So uh, when I hear the the term crowdsourcing, I, I, I think it's helpful to think about that as kind of the larger a uh, broader umbrella and uh, crowdfunding is one component of crowdsourcing that fits underneath that. So uh, crowdsourcing can include anything from open innovation from a, a company or uh, any organization turning to its potential customers and stakeholders and asking for their input, their ideas. This has been done to, to help uh, come up with ideas for new products, uh, to improve products. Um, and we've also seen uh, crowdfunding um, really take off uh, from about 2008 on as a way to fund projects. And the projects can be anything from arts related, cultural related, uh, to now we're seeing the evolution of that turn in uh, and help small businesses uh, start and help businesses grow and scale. Um, it's, uh, we're going to see really the importance of uh, this tool again um, as I mentioned, it, it really kicked off in, in 2008 with um, two platforms starting up, Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And that was really in response to the recession that we were experiencing then. And it was in response to the money that had dried up for cultural projects, arts-related projects specifically. Um, and so Kickstarter and Indiegogo have uh, since become one of the main sources of funding for those type of projects. And, and even today, Kickstarter has more funding for arts and cultural projects uh, than the uh, National Endowment for the Arts. So it's really grown. And, and that was something that started during a, a pinch. Uh, and so we might see again um, with any kind of economic uh, recession, how crowdfunding can step in and, and be a useful tool to, to help us move forward. And, and that, and I think you, you, you make a very good point that, you know, that we, we are seeing some similarities today to 2008, at least in terms of um, the economy. Um, and perhaps it's no surprise that crowdfunding projects uh, have doubled both in number and the amount of money raised in the last two years. And in fact, the projections for this year are that 
combined, all these platforms will raise over $8 billion through crowds, which is uh, absolutely astounding. Um, and it does pre create a, um interesting source of uh, of uh, funds, of money, of, of ideas, of resources for organizations that might otherwise struggle. Um, and then this brings me neatly to the next question. Um, so this power of the crowds, this idea that we are leveraging the masses uh, to solve some of our complex problems, uh, to solve some of our resource challenges, um, Lance, do you feel that there is something inherently democratic about this, the idea that we're relying on crowds? Um, is it making this process more equitable, uh, more accessible? Uh, yeah, and, and there's there's been some evidence for that already. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned venture capital, which, um, you know, each year in the U.S. Uh, invests more than $100 billion in, in growing and scaling startups. Um Although crowdfunding is a much smaller number, you know, eight billion, uh, ten billion, the the amount of people contributing to that ten billion um, is what is really interesting. So, uh, since 2016, the very end of 2016, we uh, saw some changes in legislation that allowed for uh, non-accredited investors to support projects in exchange for uh, equity or to become kind of a peer-to-peer -peer lender or peer-to to business lender to help support businesses and, and get a, a exchange in return, a financial um, uh, payback, uh, whether that's a revenue share, a term loan, or, or a piece of the business. And, and since 2016, uh, there have been nearly half a million people who have participated in this type of crowdfunding. And so it's bringing in a lot of people who weren't otherwise able to get involved as an investor in projects. Um, and even though they may be uh, contributing small amounts of money, as we can see that those small amounts can can pull together uh, to really make a big difference. So um, I, I think it is uh, getting people more involved and, and that's inherently uh, democratic. And, you know, since um, uh, Jeremy loves history, I, I, I have a, a story that that really kind of underlines it. And uh, it, it goes back to the 1880s. And um, most, most people uh, know that uh, Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, was a gift from France. Uh, what they don't know is that was actually um, the very first example of crowdfunding. And um, to raise the $250,000 that it cost to create the Statue of Liberty, it wasn't paid for by the French government. It was actually paid for by the French people. And the committee overseeing the uh, sculpture, they put a campaign out there and they asked for contributions. And, and in exchange for those contributions, they gave small statuettes. So for a dollar, you could get a six-inch statuette. For uh, $5, you could get a 12-inch statuette replica of the, the Statue of Liberty with your name engraved by the artist. And uh, they were able to raise the $250,000. Uh, to to fund the the sculpture, so it was it was really um, a democratic process uh, back then, and we're seeing that really scale now with with people's access to social media. 
It's such a great point, uh, Lance. Uh, many of our public monuments in the U.S., including parts of the mounting for the Statue of Liberty, uh, as as you said so well, came from you know, public subscriptions and 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 public crowdfunding in the way you described described the Statue of Liberty in France as well. Uh, I also think of the March of Dimes and the ways in which uh, philanthropy in the mid twentieth century, especially during the Depression, relied on on public public money. I, I guess my follow up question on this, though, is what are some of the barriers? Uh, are, are there ways in which this process of opening up funding to a larger number of, of actors and stakeholders that it sometimes leaves certain groups out and, and maybe gives them less influence than they would have in a more traditional, regulated, government centralized structure like what many of our European uh, counterparts have? Sure. So, uh, you know, there's, I, I think about the funding uh, aspect and, and right now we're looking at so many of our institutions to provide funding and disaster funding. Um, and it's, it's great that we have that. Um, you still have to go to these institutions and, and go through their process. You have to fill out um, their, their uh, required forms. Um, there may be, um, through traditional lending, there, there's certainly always credit checks, right? Um, and so there'd be, still be credit checks here. And, and as we know, um, there are uh, many populations who have had difficulty building credit and accessing capital because of credit history. Crowdfunding uh, f- doesn't look at your um, credit history, right? So it, it, it is a little riskier in terms of uh, as an investor, it can be riskier, but there's not an institutional barrier. It is still up to the crowd. They know that in advance that uh, the this person may not have good credit, but uh, they can still invest. They can still lend to this business. So uh, in, in many ways, it, it breaks down a lot of those barriers. How has uh, crowdfunding been used uh, in many ways to sort of take advantage of this mass funding system to uh, to, to either further messages uh, that are dangerous or hate-filled, or, or in many ways, I, we, we often hear about scams on crowdfunding, people funding, uh, funding uh, causes that aren't real. How, 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 how do we prevent that, and what does that look like in, in our modern world? Yeah, I, I think there's probably um, a lot fewer of those instances um, that have garnered a lot of uh, media attention. So um, there haven't been a lot of outright scams. Um, You can probably find them, but there's this idea of the wisdom of the crowds. And um, if you have enough people looking at something and and they're able to ask questions in an open and transparent way, they can flag anything that looks suspicious, uh, that doesn't add up, right? Um, We have had um, many businesses funded, many projects funded that didn't make it. And you can turn back and say, well, was it a scam? Was uh, uh, Was this the intention from the beginning? Um, And oftentimes you can see that it was just a a failed project, maybe mismanaged, um, maybe uh, there was a a problem in the supply chain that that was uh, unexpected. So there's a lot of things that can can still go wrong. There's not guaranteed success, but there hasn't been a ton of uh, bad actors that have gotten away with uh, scamming people, right? And um, now we have these intermediaries who serve as uh, brokers and portals for crowdfunding. Their job is to do a little bit of vetting, right? So uh, they make sure that before a business posts a project um, to solicit investment, that uh, they've 
they're able to run background checks. They're able to make sure this business is headquartered in the U.S. Um, and uh, it has to go and get filed through uh, with the SEC. And so they're able to run some of those checks to try and eliminate any uh, bad actors there. It's certainly still possible, but um, the the good outweighs the bad um, considerably. Yeah, I, I think just to add to that, I think um, it's absolutely true that most, um, I think that most people who start uh, campaigns uh, have good intentions in mind. I think that the, uh, while there, there probably are some bad actors out there, for the most part, failures tend to be because of poor strategy, poor planning, and poor, poor execution, as Lance suggested. Um, and to put it in perspective, on Kickstarter, the success rate is about a third. So we shouldn't be surprised that just like with new businesses, most um, crowdfunding campaigns are not going to succeed. Um, and often there just isn't the, the interest, right? People come up with great ideas. They put them on, um, on various platforms and hoping that people will support their ideas. Um, but the idea is not enough, right? You, you need more than just that idea. You need some kind of strategy. You need to convince people uh, to buy into it. And, and often campaigns simply fail. Um, Zachary, you had mentioned in your poem the idea of groupthink. And, and that also is a risk, I think, with any kind of crowd, uh, reliance on crowds, that there is a risk that people simply buy into it and essentially go along with it because it sounds great. And the more people you know, that, that believe in something and think it sounds great, the greater the likelihood that others will join. And so groupthink is um, a potential um, risk. Um, but I want, I want to say uh, how there, there is a wisdom in crowds and there is also a uh, sometimes an idiocy in crowds. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this, I think, you know, the, the, the example Lance you gave, the Statue of Liberty is, is, is I think, is really fantastic. Um, and it does kind of lead us to, to, to the next point that I hope we could discuss, which is this idea of using crowds and crowdsourcing in the policymaking sphere. So there have been many attempts to use crowds in um, public policy uh, or in general to solve complex real-world problems. I'll give you one example. Uh, the tool Foldit, um, which was created a few years ago, uh, is a, essentially a, a game that relies on crowds to fold and unfold proteins. And the actual structure of a protein matters because it dictates what it does. If we can better understand these proteins, we um, are better able to tackle diseases, everything from HIV, AIDS, cancer, Alzheimer's. And so crowds have been used to um, fold and unfold proteins to better understand how they function. And that has given uh, um, medicine uh, a head start in some of these diseases. And so what about uh, using crowds in the policy sphere uh, outside of, of, of medicine and science. So can we use crowdsourcing to do things like increase civic engagement, um, increase participation, um, and generally find a way to create a policy process that is more inclusive and more equitable and creates the opportunity for access? 
Yeah, and and that's probably um, something I'm even more excited about than than just simply the crowdfunding, uh, but it's the ability to kind of co-create with different populations to solve public challenges. Uh, This is something that I've tried to um, bring in and establish with the city of Austin through some of the projects that I've done. Uh, For example, right now we have a a challenge competition uh, that's helping Austin reach its zero waste goals. Uh, So by 2040, we want to... uh, eliminate 90% of um, recyclables that go into the waste stream um, and and repurpose them um, somehow. So each year we hold a competition where we offer prize money, we offer mentorship, uh, subject matter experts to help uh, aspiring entrepreneurs in the community take some of these materials that are ending up in the waste stream and repurpose them into new products and, and to help start new businesses that are now part of the circular economy. Uh, we're in our fifth uh, iteration of this, and so we hold it each year, and, and it's um, it's been really um, rewarding to see the number of people and the diversity of people. We've had high school students participate in, in this call uh, to action. We've had retirees participate who have never um, tried a, a business endeavor before, and so this is their first uh, attempt at entrepreneurship, and, and it's exciting to see that entire spectrum get involved and say, you know what, I, I would like to help solve this problem in a way um, that's um, not me asking the government to, to do something, right? But it's it's me saying I can work with government and I can work on the platform that government offers to help create solutions and, and maybe start a business at the same time. So I, that's what I'm really excited about is um, there are so many use cases. Uh, you mentioned Fold It. That's just one. Uh, there's challenge prizes uh, that go back pretty far in history and have done some amazing things. And, and now we're able to really start to do those at the state and local level and really engage our, our local constituency. That's super awesome. I, I love that. That's super awesome. And what, uh, so um, Lance, if you recall, in between 2010 and 2012, we were working on a civic sourcing idea. And this was the idea to create a platform where these kind of initiatives could occur, right? Where people could uh, tap into the expertise of crowds uh, to to find others with uh, like-minded concerns or interests uh, and use those, that uh, platform uh, to tackle challenges. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the concept of civic sourcing? Because you were the one who introduced me to the project, I think, back in 2010. Yeah, uh, that was a fun project to work on together. And, you know, it was really this idea of uh, there were so many technologies and channels to engage people that were emerging. And it was a, it was an attempt to try and bring these together, right? So um, if I'm asking uh, people for solutions to a zero waste challenge uh, in one channel, and then they're asking, well, I have an idea, but how does it get funded? And then we look to crowdfunding as a different tool to, to use that. The idea was really really trying to bring these together to make it happen in kind of one seamless uh, funnel. And um, I, I really haven't seen that yet, but I see that um, these different channels and different tools are, are really working together more seamlessly. And a great um, technology and, and company that's that's doing this uh, for, for so many is, is called HeroX. And it was a spinoff of the X Prize, uh, which was a, a, a huge challenge uh, 
prize uh, done uh, to help get um, commercial spaceflight. And uh, now they're doing, um, it's an open platform where you can go and host challenges. And we've been using that platform for our um, reverse pitch competition for, for that zero waste challenge. So there, there are these tools out there. Um, you have to know where they are and how to use them. So there's still some expertise uh, that's necessary for running a successful challenge competition or a crowdfunding campaign. Um, but the tools are, have, be, have improved since we started working on that and they've become more user-friendly and accessible. And, and that's what's really exciting. And you, and I know most of your work uh, obviously has been in the city of Austin, but in that role, have you uh, worked with other cities, perhaps in, in, in Texas or the country or abroad, um, that have been doing similar things? Like, is there is there an example out there you can point to and say, this is how, uh, this is an example that perhaps we could, if not emulate, learn from? Certainly. Uh, I think Austin um, is, is kind of progressive in that I, I see us trying more things than a lot of other uh, local municipalities. Um, I've really tried to emulate what is happening on, at the federal level and, and try to bring it down to the local level. So um, if you look at challenge.gov, which started uh, the very beginning of the Obama administration in 2008, um, is a platform that is hosted by our federal government that allows these different agencies to run challenge competitions and engage the crowd. Uh, NASA is uh, one of the, the more active ones on there um, and engaging its crowd of, of followers and, and advocates in, in helping solve problems. But not just them, so many other agencies are using it really well and really effectively um, to, to engage the crowd, to come up with new ideas. And, and um, that's really what we have emulated. I think we're just now seeing that um, this is uh, this is available to local um, and regional governments as well, and they can also use it. There, there are some uh, state-level examples, but there's just not very many. Uh, I'm hoping that um, some of what the some of the work that I'm doing and and some of the success that the city has had and some of its competitions and challenge prizes will be an example that uh, that others will look to. Uh, Lance, your your description just there reminded me of of such an important uh, historical lesson uh, in our democracy, which is that many of the changes, uh, if we think about uh, the progressive reforms of the early 20th century, if we think about the New Deal, if we think about the civil rights movement, many of the biggest changes in our society came from new cooperation mechanisms, new initiatives pursued by local and state and national actors simultaneously, often working across lines. Uh, members of churches, members of cities, members of the federal government working together to, to get things accomplished. Uh, what facilitates that today? Because that's not the story we hear when we think of government or when we watch the news, at least the national news, news about our government. What's facilitating uh, what, what sounds like a renaissance of that kind of activism in, in your space that you operate in? I think it's the willingness to uh, try something new and um, with our reverse pitch competition, for example, this is a, uh, a cooperative effort um, by multiple departments in the city of Austin, the Economic Development Department, the Austin Resource Recovery Department, the Innovation Office, the Sustainability Office. Um, and we're, we, we actively work together to co-plan the event and execute the event. Um, and then we also uh, fund the event from all of our different budgets. And, and there's, there's probably not a ton of projects 
that you can look to and say, hey, four different departments in a city government had enough alignment and, and clarity of focus um, and saw the value in this that they were able to uh, contribute um, from their own budgets to making it happen. So I think that's uh, really exciting. And, and it, it starts, I think, with um, some of those department directors and some of that kind of middle management in these huge bureaucracies and organizations that are saying, yeah, I'm willing to give that a try. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to admit that I don't know all the answers and I don't have all the solutions. And I see the value in the public being a participant in co-creating a solution and I'm willing to engage them. And and so I've had uh, several department directors um, with that attitude and I really latch on to those, uh, that coalition of the willing, because I think if we can have success uh, working with them, then some of these other departments will say, well, that really works for them. I'd like to give it a try too. And uh, so that's been really exciting. Um, Lance, I think that this is a, I think you give a really good example uh, of how different actors play together to make this happen. And so I wanted to ask the follow-up to that. And that is, do, do you think that tools like crowdsourcing, uh, this idea of using crowds, is it changing the way that we think of enterprise? Is it changing perhaps the way that younger generations are thinking about uh, enterprise, not just in terms of private, but also public enterprise? I, I hope so. You know, um, I uh, I love the ask not speech by Kennedy because it was just such a call to action. Um, and it, it, it was very clear where um, what the goal was, and it was um, it was pretty inclusive. This is what we're going to do as a nation, and it's not just us; it's everybody. And um, maybe somewhere since then, we we kind of lost that a little bit. But I, I feel like it's it's really starting to come back where um, we feel like um, the people feel that they can be part of the solution, and it, it doesn't always have to be this agency that comes up with the solution or this you know form of government. Um, so I, I I hope that it continues. Um, we just need to know that it's we can be part of the solution, um, and there are ways to engage. Uh, Lance, that's a perfect place for us to turn to our, our last question, and it, it's really the question we always ask at the end of these uh, wonderful podcast interviews. Uh, what is it that you think uh, our many young listeners and, and our not so young listeners, <laughs> what they should take away? What are the ways in which all the energy and all the creativity and all the co-creating that you're describing can be furthered by, by our listeners and, and, and how can they contribute? Uh, what, what should they do to make what you're describing more prominent and some of the counter pressures that are all too common in the news cycle make those less prominent in our society? Great, great question. So here's here's the call to action. Uh, go to challenge.gov, go to herox.com, go to Kickstarter, go to Indiegogo, find a project that you can support that uh, has a, a cause that you believe in and that you want to be a part of and contribute five, 10, 15, $25 to that crowdfunding campaign. Um, look for a project uh, on challenge.gov or HeroX where you have a skill set, a piece of knowledge that you can contribute and help somebody solve a challenge. Sign up for those competitions and get involved. Um, you'll meet new people. You'll extend your network. Uh, you'll increase your experience and, and, it'll be very rewarding when you see how your contributions can make a difference. I I love the pragmatism and the idealism of that both together. Miha, is is this what motivates you and so much of your work in this space? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think for me, the, the motivation comes from this idea that we, we need to find ways of getting people, particularly young people, more civically engaged, more involved in our democracy. Um, if we if we believe in, in the political system we have and, and we believe that, that this is a good and effective and an equitable way to organize society, we need to find ways and tools that speak to young people, uh, tools that allow them to participate in ways that they feel comfortable participating. Um, and since we've seen an explosion of these tools, we've seen a lot of young people tap into these uh, tools, everything from, from Kickstarter to GoFundMe. Uh, to me, this is a natural extension then and saying, well, can we use these tools to get young people involved? This is why I was so excited when, well, 10 years ago, uh, Lance asked me to, to become involved in the civic sourcing project uh, because I see this, um, the whole kind of concept of crowdsourcing as a powerful tool uh, that if we use wisely can help increase participation. I love it. I love the image of that. And, and, and you've, you've embodied that, Miha, certainly in the almost 10 years that, I, that I've had the opportunity to know you and work with you. Uh, Zachary, uh, for young people like yourself, um, stuck at home now, uh, taking your classes online, is this inspiring? Does this address the concerns that you have about, about the future of our democracy? I think it does. And and I think uh, young people are, are naturally egalitarian. And what this does is it offers us um, a platform. It offers us a way into the system. And, and that's really powerful. I agree. I agree. Well said, Zachary. Uh, when, when Lance referred to uh, John F. Kennedy's, President Kennedy's famous inaugural address uh, on sort of uh, reaching and, and as a new generation taking the reins of leadership, I think it's, it's something that inspires all of us. Another speech that, that inspires this podcast, of course, is Franklin Roosevelt's address that we used actually in episode one, 86 episodes ago, where he talks about the next generation writing the new chapters of democracy. And it sounds to me, Lance, Miha, Zachary, that, that crowdsourcing is a wonderful grassroots approach to writing the next chapters of our society, chapters we can't fully anticipate, but chapters that, as Lance said so well, uh, the wisdom of the crowd can help us to navigate as we go forward uh, regarding health, economics, technology, so many of the issues we care about. Uh, Lance and Miha, thank you for all of the great work you do in this area and for providing us the opportunity to learn about this exciting space, uh, the idealism and the pragmatism of it. Yeah, what, what you've done and what you describe, I think, will inspire many of our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Zachary, thank you for, for being our bridge as always to uh, younger thinkers, the people who will in the end uh, be going to Lance's uh, office and helping him to do what he does. <laughs> uh, I hope all of our listeners will be inspired and see that even in a time of crisis and suffering in our society, there are so many possibilities for all of us to make a difference and that there is a wisdom in what all of us can do as individuals as part of a larger collective American and international community. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. 
Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.